Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hello, everybody. Today's episode of Other People is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that makes it simple for you to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Are you in need of a website? Would you like to make your existing website better? Squarespace is the answer. It's a godsend. Do you realize this? At Squarespace, you'll find a wide array of gorgeous, customizable designs with over 20 templates to choose from and a variety of style options available so you can make your site look exactly how you want it to look. It will be unique. And better yet, Squarespace is easy to use. It's a service for people like me. I'm not a technology wizard. In fact, I'm not a wizard of any kind, but Squarespace makes me feel like a wizard. And hey, listen, if for some reason you go to Squarespace and you need a little help with your website situation, uh, it's no problem whatsoever. Squarespace has an amazing crack support team on hand, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And remember, these people work in an office that has been nicknamed the Care Bear Lair. That is what it's called. I'm not making this up. The people who work in the Care Bear Lair are there for you. They will help you. They love you. Packages start at just $8 a month, and you get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Also, every single website design automatically includes a unique mobile experience. It'll match the overall style of your website, so your content will always look great on every device every single time. So come on, folks. What are you waiting for? Start a trial right now with no credit card required and start building your website. Visit squarespace.com. And when you sign up at Squarespace, be sure to use the offer code OTHER9. Again, that offer code is OTHER9. You do that, you get 10% off. And hey, it's a wonderful way to show your support for this program. So come on, other people, listeners. Go to squarespace.com and take advantage of an amazing deal. It's available right now. It's an excellent way to build or improve your web presence. Squarespace, it's everything you need to create an exceptional website. So go and create one. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. 
just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is entering your field of awareness. This is marking the cultural moment. Thank you for being here. My name is Brad Listy, and I am sitting, as usual, in a chair in Los Angeles, California. Uh, a lot to get to today. Tom Parada is my guest. His new story collection, Nine Inches, is out from St. Martin's Press. It's great to have him here on the program, and uh, our conversation is going to be unfolding momentarily. But uh, first, I have some mail that I want to get to. A listener named Michael Wayne Hampton writes, Dear Brad, heard your show today where you related your first experience with Adderall I was prescribed the drug earlier this year. I ended up writing for 12 hours straight and completing an entire 64-page novella the first two days I took it. It went on to win the Dear Bird Novella Prize and comes out next year from Artistically Declined Press. I hate to advocate drug use, but in this case, it worked. Thank you, Michael Wayne Hampton. So, you see what I'm saying? This is, this is exactly what I was talking about in uh, the previous episode. This is what literary steroids can yield. And make no mistake about it, that's what Adderall is. It's literary steroids. <laughs> uh, so I guess the salient question at this point would be, uh, what happens next? Can Michael Wayne Hampton continue to crank out award-winning fiction uh, in a matter of hours while under the influence of these uh, prescription-strength amphetamines? Or was, you know, was this just beginner's luck? And will there be a, a diminishing returns from this point forward? I have to believe it's the latter. That's the way drugs are. There's no way this guy can keep this up. It's impossible. Or is it? And uh, then here's a voicemail from a listener named Bill. Here's Bill's voicemail. Brad, this is Bill, one of your listeners in the greater Seattle area. So recently you've featured a number of voicemails that I would say range somewhere between sad and deranged. Uh, people meowing like cats. People saying that they want to see Miley Cyrus's butt on a radio podcast. <laughs> And uh, many other things. And so I would like you to not play any of the, more of those voicemails because they are presenting a picture of your listeners that is extremely unflattering. And as one of your listeners, I'm not sure I like what it says about me. So please don't play any more of those. Okay. Uh, so, Bill, uh, thank you for weighing in. I appreciate it. And uh, for anyone out there who's listening who does not have context... Uh, Bill is referring to messages like this one. So it's like where you have uh, a listener who was impersonating a cat in a cartoonish manner. And he, you know, he, I think it was a he. He then spoke as the cat, so it wasn't just all meowing. But, um, you know, my feeling on this is that I'm going to play a variety of listener responses, including the ones that, uh, to use Bill's words, might seem uh, deranged and sad <laughs> uh, to some people. Or, or perhaps these kinds of messages seem funny to other listeners. Uh, I, I would imagine there's a range of responses. 
And, uh, you know, I'm also going to be playing more substantive, serious messages uh, when they come through. You know, like my feeling is that the show is uh, entertainment ultimately. And I'm trying to make this entertaining in the way that uh, book-related media so often is not. And frankly, uh, I can't pick my audience. And I wouldn't want to. So, uh, for example, I got this message the other day from a guy uh, who goes by Marcus P. Davidson. So here's this. Uh, hey Brad, it's me, Marcus P. Davidson. Per your request, I decided to write you a song. Brad. Brad, 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 so, Brad, 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 I don't know. That's kind of lame. But I, I think at the same time, I find it in some way redeeming because I am susceptible uh, to listeners singing and rapping about me and writing poetry about me, which I've mentioned before. Uh, and I would feel strange, uh, Bill, to go back to Bill's point, I would feel strange getting this kind of th- this kind of stuff and then keeping it to myself. These kinds of messages. Like, like, what am I supposed to do with this? I don't want it just sitting here in my inbox. Like, festering. <laughs> uh, I feel the need to propagate it, I guess. I want to infect you with it. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, one more voicemail. And this one comes from a listener uh, named Carly. So, here we go. Hi, Brad. This is Carly from Manhattan, um, sitting here with my dog, Jonesy. Uh, my brother, Michael, and I are avid listeners of your podcast. Uh, my brother just moved to Newcastle to pursue a, uh, an MFA in creative writing. Um, we both kind of reluctantly call ourselves the writers. Uh, uh, and he's kind of having a bout of, like, what the fuck am I doing here? Uh, and he really wanted to leave you a voicemail, but he was a little bit too nervous. And uh, these are his words regarding leaving you a voicemail. I wanted to tell him, him being you, Brad, my situation, like how I'm about to start a creative writing program. And I wanted to ask him for encouraging words, only that would make me feel better about taking on an impractical course of study. I wanted him to say things that would only make me feel good. I think it would be nice hearing it from him. Now, Brad, I realize you're not Delilah and you're not going to play like you know, I hope you dance for my brother, but I know this would mean a lot to him. Um, just hearing some words from you about writing and, you know, life, uh, that would be great. So let me know. And, uh, you can email me at C-A-L. Okay. Uh, hello, Carly. Thank you for listening. Thanks for the message. Uh, I would be happy to respond to your brother, Michael, the freshly minted, MFA candidate who wonders if he's, uh, if what he's doing is a good idea. And, uh, I think the first thing that comes to mind is money on the practical side, because, uh, I don't think you specified anything about this. Is he taking on student loan debt to get this advanced degree? Does he have a fellowship or some other kind of scholarship? Are your parents paying his tuition? Are you paying his tuition? Is he paying his tuition? Because, you know, from a practical standpoint, this would seem to matter insofar as risk is concerned. Because, you know, obviously the career path, the, uh, the writerly career path, is fraught with uh, all kinds of risks. And, you know, to enter it carrying the burden 
like to enter your career carrying the burden of $75,000 or more in student loan debt. I mean, I think that's what it costs. It's somewhere in there. Uh, you know, that can obviously exacerbate one's uh, sense of uh, inner pressure. And, you know, frankly, student loan debt is worth a, a discussion of its own. I think it's horrible that college students are saddled with this in this country. And it sickens me. <laughs> it really does. So, you know, that issue aside, uh, Michael, you are a writer. Carly, you too. You're writers, uh, or so you claim. And so here's the thing, okay? Listen to this. If you're really a writer, then there's nothing you can do about it. No matter what else you try to do, you're still going to be a writer, at least to some degree. And you will likely be largely unhappy in any other career, or relatively so. And regardless of how you pay the bills, you will, be, you will still be writing on the side. You will be writing on the bus to work compulsively or on the subway. You will be getting up at ungodly hours to uh, work on your manuscript. You will be spending your weekends uh, in a caffeinated haze trying to finish your collection of uh, interconnected short stories while uh, the rest of your friends and co-workers are out getting laid and promoted and married and so on this is what will happen because uh, it's a disease <laughs> and you either have it or you don't it, it, it sounds like you have it Michael you're in an MFA program for God's sake that's a sign and uh, yeah you, you know you are now subjecting yourself to a certain level of risk but, you know, stop for a moment and ask yourself something. Ask yourself, you know, if you don't try this, if you don't give this a shot, if you don't go hide uh, on this university campus for a couple of years and try to write your novel and follow your dream and get this thing started, uh, how are you going to feel 30 years from now or 50 years from now when you are lying on your back in a hospital room that smells like a mixture of urine uh, bleach and stewed vegetables. Are, you know, are you going to say, "Oh God, I, I wish I would have applied myself more uh, to writing advertising copy at that job I spent an entire lifetime hating"? I doubt it. You know, as your nurse like uh, changes your diaper. <laughs> and you wheeze uh, audibly through a set of oxygen tubes, are you going to be thinking about student loan debt? I don't think so. Uh, what you'll probably be thinking about if you don't follow this course is, uh, why did I waste my life working jobs I hated? Why did I not have balls? Why did I waste my ex uh, existence on a path uh, devoted primarily to risk limitation? Because the truth is that the biggest risk you can take if you really are a writer is to not try. Because if you don't try, it can't happen. And if you don't try, you're going to second-guess yourself for the rest of your life, and privately, your sister is going to lose respect for you. So go get your MFA, damn the torpedoes, uh, default on your student loan debts. Fuck the banks. They're vampires. Feeding on the blood of college students and using the profits to finance 
uh, vacation homes in the south of France. Okay? So thank you, Carly, for listening and for sending along that voicemail. Uh, And Michael, uh, best of luck. Best of luck to both of you. Uh, If you're out there and you want to leave me a message, remember you can do so at the show's official website, otherpeoplepod.com. Just click on send voicemail uh, over on the right side of the page. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today, once again, is Tom Parada. His new story collection is called Nine Inches. It is available now from St. Martin's Press. His other books include Election, Little Children, The Abstinence Teacher, and The Leftovers. I'm really happy to have him here on the program. Uh, So here we go. This is Tom Parada, and his new story collection, once again, is called Nine Inches. Okay, I'm in my house, which is in... uh... Belmont, Massachusetts, uh, one town over from Cambridge, and I am up in my office on the third floor. Okay. On the third floor? I, I guess there's a basement. Uh, well, there actually, it, it's, uh, there's a basement, but I'm not counting that. There's a, there's like an attic, you know, like an attic floor where I have an office. Oh, okay. Okay. And you're from the East Coast, correct? Yeah. I grew up in New Jersey. Okay. And I lived in uh, the Boston area for the past. Uh, 20 years. Okay. So, um, I want to ask you about your upbringing, uh, as it pertains to your work, because, uh, a lot of people, uh, comment in reviews about, uh, how the suburbs figure prominently into your work, how you're a chronicler of, uh, suburban American life. Did you have that kind of, uh, upbringing or is this something that you came to later? No, no, I've, I've spent most of my life in, small towns outside of big cities. So I guess that counts as suburbs. I think where I grew up in New Jersey is a small town called Garwood. Um, and it was a blue collar suburb that has since become kind of post-industrial and a little more upscale since I left. But, uh, you know, as so I grew up thinking of myself working class and I, and I think you can see that in, books like Bad Haircut and The Wishbones and Joe College that are set in that world. And I think it's, it's somewhat different from this leafy sort of upscale academic Boston suburb that I live in now. And uh, lapsed Roman Catholic because religion is also, uh, you know, has, has also figured prominently into some of your more recent work. Yeah, you know, 
it's it's funny. Uh, lapse sort of implies that there was once a time when there was there was a real commitment, and and you know there may have been a year when I was nine or ten when <laughs> I was serious about being Catholic, but um, it really was just like part of the culture, and it was uh, it felt like a family obligation rather than. Um, something that, that I embraced. And I was told to, you know, get confirmed, which in those days you got confirmed at age 13. And uh, then I didn't have to go <laughs> go anymore. It's kind of a funny thing. You know, it was like graduating from Catholicism. Um, and, uh, you know, the interesting thing was that my mother, who had been very insistent that her kids go to church. Um, she stopped when, when we stopped as well. So I think it really was one of those, it's good for the kids. Um, and I, I think the thing that, that ruined me was that my dad, who uh, was a, a mail carrier um, and work, often worked six days a week, um, he just didn't want to he just didn't want to go, and he stayed home and ate donuts and read the paper. And I thought, man, <laughs> that's, that's the religion I want to belong to. <laughs> so there wasn't a lot of tension. I mean, was there, like, did you ever have, like, fights with your mother, like, I don't want to go, or was it one of those things you just sort of endured? It, it, you know, we, we just sort of endured it. Um, my brother and I played football back then, so uh, we had Pop Warner games in the fall, and so I think sometimes we were... Uh, excused from church for for football, and that was always my recollection was that Sunday was was much more about football than than it was about church. <laughs> and and I think there was not um, the, the '70s for for Catholics. I think was a, a kind of a strange moment. Um, I, I only you know realize it now because I think the, the church has sort of. Um, you know, had a bit of a, a, a resurgence and people take it more seriously. I don't remember people taking it very seriously. I remember, you know, going to the folk masses and um, just feeling somehow like even the, the religious people I knew were, had a very tenuous connection to it. And, and I think it's one of the reasons I was so surprised uh, when I got older and I realized just how seriously some people took their religion. I think it really caught me off guard because I just didn't know people like that. Well, I was going to say, like, I think part of that might be like where you were, you know, what part of the country you were raised in, because uh, I'm a lapsed Catholic for, you know, lack of a better term. And my folks are from the South. They still go to church. And like, I have aunts who were nuns. They are no longer nuns. I have an uncle who's a priest. And, you know, down, down South, especially like, it's completely different. Like, <laughs> and, uh, and in the middle of the country, but like people really get into it. And I never could i think i was similar to you um but i'm curious to know if you ever ran into i mean it sounds like you didn't run into people within the church or within like i don't know if you had ccd did they have that in jersey Um, yeah they they did they did but it it, again that felt half-hearted to me as well and and we that was the only place where i sort of came in contact with nuns and uh you know they seemed for the most part uh they were old and uh, a few of them were crazy, you know, that, that was, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, really. And in fact, you know, I had friends who went, there was a Catholic school in our town and I had friends who went to the Catholic school and, um, the education that they got there was, was, uh, you know, abysmal. And I think they'd be the, the first to say, it because they had these kind of crazy nuns teaching them who, um, just, just weren't qualified. 
Well, I had a, I remember I had a Sunday school teacher who, when I was very young, you know, I was like elementary school age and, and I guess probably fourth grade, third grade, but I distinctly remember her talking about premarital sex and how there were such, there was such a thing as cardinal sins, which were sins that God never forgave you for. And like, you know, like they were, they were unforgivable. And I look back on that and I just shake my head. It's like, what an atrocious thing to be telling children. You know? like, yeah. And what, what a strange thing to be telling them, you know, post-sexual revolution. Yeah. It just, it just seems heavy. And and like, I don't know, there's a million ways yeah. to kind of like poke that, but um, you know, I obviously have uh, conflicted feelings about it because so much of my family is still involved in it. But uh, I think you've been mercifully spared that. Yeah, well, my, my, you know, my brother is the one member of our family who you know re- remains religious, and he he does live down south. And I um, was at his church um, recently. My son was uh, confirmed, and and I did feel what you're talking about. I felt like a, you know, that that the intensity of Protestant culture had sort of, um, you know, transferred itself into Catholicism. But I must say this was a somewhat upscale part of Atlanta, and I was very impressed by all the, um, like, diamond-encrusted crucifixes that <laughs> were wearing around their neck. I thought, wow, it's like Christian bling. I had never seen that before. Yes, I can see that in Atlanta, because, I mean, I feel like there's a... Uh... You know, I think of like people in seersucker suits at church or something like that when I think of Atlanta yeah. or certain parts of it. But um, to, to just kind of trace a little bit more along the uh, biographical line, uh, you wound up and you said you were playing football with your brother. So were you an athletic kid? Was this like, were you bookish or were you both? Uh, both, but but very athletic. Um, I, I did not grow. So I, I remain like, I'm, I'm pretty short and I had was playing uh, Pop Warner and then uh, was a quarterback on the freshman team and played also sophomore year. And that was the year that everybody else grew and, and I <laughs> remained pretty small. And, and uh, I just, I remember I was playing safety and this tight end, you know, caught a pass in front of me and I hit him with all I had and he just ran right through me and I was just laying on the ground vibrating and I said, this isn't going to work. <laughs> it was a pivotal moment. Uh, it was, and, and I think you know, I'd also discovered rock and roll and um, and 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 reading, and and back then I think there was much more of a kind of two roads dividing in the wood. You know, I kind of took what felt like the countercultural road at the time. Okay, so and what like what was the year? Like what were these years? These were the number. This was this was around 1975. Okay, so. Uh, like a lot of the writers that I've talked to on this show, like they can often point to uh, moments of cataclysm in their early life where the, you know, where they, someone died or they had some sort of uh, very difficult period of childhood with illness or something. Um, was there anything like that with respect to your childhood that you feel that you can point to and say like, this is when I started to maybe turn inward and get involved uh, with books or, was it more just like once the athletic career <laughs> sort of ended and you started to listen to music? Like, was that the gateway? Yeah, no, I, I actually did not have a, a traumatic childhood at all. I had a, I think, looking back on it now, a, a pretty great one, I think. Um, but I think that, you know, rock and roll kind of just, blew my mind when I was about 12 or, or 13. And I had a, a, a good friend whose brother, 
was playing guitar and my cousin was was playing in a band and um you know I, that was i think still <clears throat> you know the 60s were kind of in the air and and this idea that um there was something renegade about that world and and that it separated you from your parents and from you know the jocks they they felt like a separate path at the time and somehow it linked up with uh you know with certain kinds of books as well so you know i i i was i wrote a piece uh some years ago called I'm on fire which is about um this event that happened when i was maybe it was sophomore year it was the year when i was sort of making up my mind to quit football you know i love uh in dazed and confused when the uh randall pink floyd you know won't turn in his permission slip right right because you know in in uh doing so he has to like make a pledge that he's not going to do drugs and all these other people do it you know just what what the hell i'll just you know, check the box because I want to play football, but he won't do it because he feels like it's inauthentic. But it was the, my sophomore year, and I was realizing that I'm not going to play next year, and I was sort of skipping these off-season workouts that you're supposed to do. But I still, you know, part of me wanted it, and I was walking around uh, alone at night, and this car pulled up, and it was um, some guys, uh, senior football players, and uh, they, uh, they go, hey, come here, come here. And it was a freezing night, and they, I, I went running over to the car thinking, oh, I'm going to hang out with these football players. And somehow I was like feeling like maybe I'll get, you know, realize that I really am one of them. <laughs> and just as I approached the car, they blasted me with this fire extinguisher that they'd stolen, and they just like completely drenched me uh, on the street on this freezing night. And I just remember, like now, just thinking about that as like the moment when. You know, they they told me that I was no longer one of them, wow. which I was sort of suspecting too. You know, that, but that's I mean, you know, like maybe had they had that not happened, think you know, the, life can turn on weird uh, moments like that in some ways. You know, yeah, no, it, it really is is funny because I I, I do think you know I, I mean I I could possibly be using a storyteller's simplification. I think that probably in my mind I knew I was done but i also remember feeling like really thrilled that these guys had pulled over and that i might be able to hang out with them and so there was a kind of a betrayal and a clarification when <laughs> when i got soaked and you know realized that they didn't like me any more than i liked them so okay and, and like then you mentioned like the the rock and roll thing and i find it interesting that you say did you have do you have an older brother or a younger brother yeah I have a brother who's a year older. Okay, which often is the case when people get introduced to good music when they're 12 or 13 years old. And uh, you had a cousin who was playing in a band, uh, which probably didn't hurt as well. So, uh, like, did you grow your hair out? Were you that kid in high school? Yeah, yeah, yes, I was. No, I have to say, so my brother's a year older, and my brother definitely, you know, turned me on to the Beatles. But uh, beyond that, he, you know, he had a poster of Olivia Newton-John, in our room and, and uh, <laughs> he, he, you know, he was, I, now, now I, I respect him. He was huge on the stylistics. He had a kind of a soul thing going, but I, I had a friend who, you know, we kind of went the, the Led Zeppelin route and my cousin was uh, definitely more my guide and you know, the person who took me to concerts. And so what were you, what were you listening to? What, what concerts were you going to back in the seventies? Uh, well, you know, the first one I went to, 
was was just amazing. We went to see uh, Todd Rundgren's Utopia. I was, I was a big Todd Rundgren fan back in in those days. Uh, also, you know, Almond Brothers, uh, Santana. Um, you know, I had tickets for the uh, for Leonard Skinner's Madison Square Garden show, which they uh, couldn't play because the, uh, the the plane crash happened just shortly before that. It was a Ted Nugent was opening for them, and uh, we we went anyway, even though Ted Nugent became the headliner. And I feel like Ted Nugent could be a character in one of your books somehow. <laughs> <laughs> He's a character. Yeah. It was a ter- it was a terrible show. It was one of those moments when. Uh, you know, my friend threw up on my shoes, and, and <laughs> the sound was so bad, and it was so loud, and I sort of hated Ted Nugent even then. <laughs> Good instincts. And, yeah, I know. I had no idea. But then, you know, I took a bad turn. I think around the time I got more bookish, uh, my friend and I kind of did that that turn into, you know, Yes and Genesis and I don't know, like super tramp. Dude, also, I was, I was, fusion. no, I was, because like you were mentioning earlier, like the sixties and how that the, you know, the music of that era was really sticky and like, I'm younger than you. I was born in 75. And when I was in high school, like I, maybe it's a function of living in Indiana, which is sort of in its way, a cultural backwoods, but like, that's the music that we listened to. And I, in high school, I don't think there was an album that I listened to more like my junior year in high school than super tramps greatest hits, which I look, which I look back on with like some sort of like puzzlement, like what in the hell was going on there? But I'm still nostalgic when I hear that music for whatever reason, it just totally connected with my brain. (laughs) Yeah, no, I know. I know. I, I, you know, like I've been hearing yes again, I got satellite radio and sometimes I'll be in the, you know, the seventies channel and I'll hear some of these great old songs by yes. And I, you know, the lyrics are ridiculous, but I still can be transported. It's, you know, something in my brain responds, but it's, it's one of those moments when, you know, you know, when I think about it now, it's like the Ramones and the Clash were happening, and I, I love that stuff now. But at the time, it didn't mean that much to me, really. Right. You know, um, only later did I, re- you know, realize that, that that was this great moment when you know the spirit of rock and roll was sort of reclaimed by by punk. And but frankly, I was listening to you know thirteen minute songs. I was actually <laughs> I don't know if you ever heard of this band Renaissance. You know. No. Oh my God! That was this was Prague, like at the far, far end. I went to many, many concerts. It's like one step from away from going to the Renaissance Fair, you know. That <laughs> British, uh, like, I think, if there wasn't a flute, there should have been a flute, you know. Well, you know, it's so weird that you say that because, like, when I was in high school in the early '90s, it was like all about grunge and Nirvana, and I guess I listened to some some of that stuff, but. I didn't, I had no sense of how important it was to the wider culture and was like, I was listening to like, you know, super tramp and I was really into Curtis Mayfield, you know, and Curtis Mayfield's not bad. Yeah, no, I mean, I had like, (laughs) but I was also listening to like, you know, Neil Diamond with like this ironic, like posture. I thought he was like hilarious. Uh, but I also like secretly, I think liked the music in some way. And I don't know. I just had, I just had this, um, I guess I just felt like I was out of sync with the cultural moment in retrospect, and I sort of felt bad about that. Maybe, like, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, you know, I, I think I, you know, I remember I was teaching at Yale um, the year that that Kurt Cobain died, and I walked into the room, and my students were just 
you know, they were just devastated. And I'd sort of been following the saga because he was, you know, falling apart pretty publicly for several months before that. And, I, you know, I just remember kind of, you know, not really being able to take their grief seriously, not really being able to share what, what they felt about them. Though, of course, within a couple of years, when I started to really listen to the music, and I think it was the MTV Unplugged um, record that changed my mind, you know, I, now I just think, well, of course, the guy was a giant, you know. And, and, sure. You know, but again, it's it. I was, I was, uh, at that point, I had just finished grad school, and, you know, people listen to music so much different. I listened in the car, and I had a cassette player, and usually I had about six cassettes in the car. And if I'm not mistaken, it, you know, I listened to Tom Waits and the Pogues and Ricky Lee Jones exclusively for about five years. I miss cassettes. I mean, I used to deliver because I was like right at the tail end of all that. But I was also like a holdout because I delivered pizzas uh, in my, you know, college years, late high school, college years, and was doing a lot of driving. And I loved them. I, I don't know why. And, and, I, and I miss listening to full albums, too. I mean, I don't mean to sound like an old fogey, but I think there's something to that. When you like Nowadays, it's just like, you know, track by track. And I think you miss something when you're not listening to the full thing. Oh yeah, no. They're, they're, I just don't have that connection with individual artists that I had back then. Where, where, you know, there'd be a record like Tunnel of Love, <clears throat> my partner, and I would just listen to that for for months. And when I hear it now, it just it just brings that time back to me. Sure. So vividly. Well, and like just to like go a little bit further with respect to like the cultural moment and being in tune with your times culturally. Um, and then feeling bad for not having been so, you know, or like looking back and wondering like if you made some sort of mistake, like I think I'm still that way. Like I look around sometimes, uh, on social media and I see everybody chattering about this thing as if it's the most important thing in the world. And like, I've just heard of it. And I'm like, you know, is there something wrong with me <laughs> that I can't keep up or is it, you know, is it maybe a, a good thing to not be like so wired into like the precise moment and the, you know, do, do you concern yourself with that at all? Like, do you feel a sense of uh, needing to keep up, you know, whether it's books or it's television or film or music? Like, do you, or have you lost some of that? Uh, I, I, I've lost some, I've always had, a, a, you know, I mean, I think it's a, it's also, it's a slightly elitist stance, which is, you know, if everybody else is reading it, if everybody else is going to that movie or listening to that band, then I don't need to, listen to that band. So for instance, I didn't, I didn't see a star Wars movie, uh, until, until my kids wanted to see it. So this is in, you know, uh, maybe 2004. You, you know, mean, I just, I just, I did not see a star Wars movie in the seventies or eighties. Oh, I was going to say, so you're talking like you didn't even see the first three. No, wow. <laughs> I just decided like, I didn't need to see them. See, I, like I don't know. I, I don't know where that came from. No, but I get that way sometimes. It's just, and I think it's just the noise. It's like, ah, uh, it's like you, you've ruined it for me preemptively. There's just too much chatter about this, and I don't care how good it is. Like it's just, I don't know. I, I have that component, like that, ref, that that reflex, I think, in my personality, where I'm just like, you know, I'm not doing this if I, <laughs> I can't take it or I can't participate in it without feeling like I'm hearing the voices of like a, a million different people on Twitter commenting on it or something. Yeah, no, I think it, it's it's pretty. I mean, it certainly it's been that way with reality TV for me. I, I just uh, felt like, oh, not for me. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I just didn't 
want to go there. I mean, I, I, I know what you mean about, about social media and, and that sense that, you know, if you don't know this, you know, it, it's sort of hopeless. <laughs> I just don't have time. I mean, I, I mean, I guess you make time for what you want to make time for, but I don't understand how people can keep up with all this. Like I feel that's another thing that makes me a little bit panicky uh, in a quiet way is like, well, what am I doing wrong here? Like, <laughs> You know, everybody's like so on top of all this stuff and like I'm barely able to stay on top of like, you know, the, the couple of things that I'm into. It just seems like a lot of work. Yeah. Well, I, I think there's this, this, uh, you know, the, the, the thing that always freaks me out is when people will say like, okay, hive mind, you know, tell me, uh, what movie I should see this weekend. <laughs> you know, um, there's just this sense of, uh, you know, you you want to be part of you know it's really that that that's just that basic thing of I want to be part of the gang, I want to be part of the herd, um, and I think there's far less of a sense that you know one should go one's own way and and uh, explore the, these you know weird corners of the culture than, than there used to be. Okay, so that's interesting that you say that because, like, I'll bring it into a more literary context and a more uh, contemporary literary context. Because, you know, obviously you work in uh, in the literary trade, uh, and um, I guess there there might be some sense of obligation to keep up with what's being published. Uh, you know, like what what are what are people who are currently writing doing? I think there's something normal about wanting to have an awareness of that like certainly this show uh has some component to that or some some part of this show has to do with that but um i guess my question is that i can sometimes feel uh like i mean there's obviously so many books being published that when i when i look out or i talk to writer friends it can sometimes seem like everybody's reading the same thing or that there's like this narrow channel of authors or books that are getting the attention and there's all this other work that's uh, often really great and, you know, uh, totally worth reading that's not getting said attention. And so I just wonder, like, it, like, do you, when you approach your reading life, are you paying attention to like the New York Times book review to um, decide what to read or are you more idiosyncratic than that in your approach? And do you think... And then what do you make of your approach? Like, do you think it really feeds your writing? Um, I, I think that I'm less idiosyncratic than I thought I was. You know, I think that's part of the uh, joy of being young is that, you know, if my cousin tells me, hey, you got to read this guy, Jersey Kaczynski. It's like, I've never heard of Jersey Kaczynski before. I think I'm getting some incredibly obscure tip from my cousin, but probably my cousin heard it from some teacher who saw it reviewed in the New York Times book review, you know? Yeah. So I, because I was the only kid in my high school reading Jersey Kaczynski, say, I feel like, oh, I'm this, uh, you know, really sophisticated literary bohemian who's sort of digging around and finding things that nobody else is finding. Um, and then, you know, I think as you get older, you realize that, that there is a literary culture and, and it is kind of telling you what to read. And, and, you know, frankly, if, you know, James Wood says you should read Per Pedersen or you should read Elena Ferrante, you know, I'll, I'll go and read those people. Um, I need somebody to tell me what to read. And I also, you know, I'm still trying to catch up on those books. I remember in college thinking like, oh, boy, 
you know, I really need to read Moby Dick or I really need to read Trollope or, you know, so it's, uh, I think my reading is sort of a combination of what people I respect are recommending at, at any given moment in my own sense of, you know, holes that I need to fill. And then, you know, this undeniable um, taste for for genre fiction that, that I have been sort of cultivating over my entire reading life. So I just read a ton of crime fiction and uh, spy fiction and stuff like that. So, I, you know, there definitely is a part of me that wants to try and keep up, but, but resents that as well. And, you know, resents it as a reader and as a writer, this, this, um, you know, when something suddenly becomes, you know, culturally required reading, which of course I would love if one of my books became culturally required reading. <laughs> right, right, right. But, but it's very annoying when someone else's book does. Well, and I just think like, you know, from my own writerly perspective, I think like what you're going to write or what people generally are going to write is going to be a lot more interesting if there's uh, a more individual uh, DNA from a, a reading perspective than if, you know, all these books are being written after everyone's kind of ingested the same string of books. I, I think that's maybe what worries me or I don't know. Yeah, well, that, you know, I, I'm very, uh, very aware of that, you, you know, what really makes me aware of it is, is working in Hollywood because almost any idea that somebody has, you know, 10 other people are having at exactly the same moment. Sure. And you'll yeah. see it, you know, there'll, there'll be three movies about some cultural figure, all at once, um, and and I do feel like, it, you know, there's pressure to to kind of participate in these um, collective literary ventures. But I think what you really do have to do is um, kind of uh, really cherish those things that that make you somewhat unique or find those cultural inputs that other people aren't, you know, paying a lot of attention to. I mean, certainly was this feeling I had while working on the abstinence teacher and the leftovers was, you know, that, that plunging into contemporary evangelical culture was like a really <laughs> rich thing to be doing as a writer. And that, that a lot of, you know, obviously that they're, they're millions of people in America who are in that culture, but, but not a lot of them are, you know, writing literary novels. Right. That's what I, yeah, that's what I chuckled about. I was thinking of like the, the vast number of literary novelists. Like, I don't think a lot of them were necessarily paying attention to that. And I think like from a reading perspective, uh, or just, you know, the, the perspective of curiosity and that often drives reading. Uh, but also, uh, thinking back to, you know, your musical, uh, childhood, you know, falling in love with rock and roll and finding albums and sharing music and getting tipped off on things by older people. Uh, I think what I'm ultimately driving at is just how essential that process of discovery is when you're really kind of following your nose as opposed to just sort of like receiving the, the, the pipeline of information that comes at you through all the, the normal media channels. Yeah. Well, Matt, it's interesting to try and decide if, something fundamentally different is at play now or, or if it's the same thing, you know, in other words, you know, I created my own network in those days. Some of it was just somebody's older brother. Sometimes it was people who, you know, who I knew who played music or there was that kind of secret handshake of like, Oh, you like that band? I, I like that band. You should 
check out this other one. Um, you know, maybe maybe that's happening for kids in high school now on this this grand scale, uh, and, and there's spaces for for new bands and interesting obscure phenomena to, to rise to the surface. But I do think, in general, there's a kind of a homogenizing effect. Sure. Well, I wanna I wanna um, finish with your youth. <laughs> um, you went to Yale. Uh, mm-hmm. after growing up in uh, kind of like a working-class neighborhood in Jersey. So uh, was that a big transition? Like, did you have any difficulty with it? or? And you must have been, uh, a, good, you must have been a good student if you got into Yale. I, you know, I was a good student. Um, looking back on it now, I, I, I was a good student because I read a ton. Um, and I, had, I actually had, I had very good teachers, in this, especially very good English teachers at this um what was, you know, I think a kind of not spectacular public school, but not, not a bad one in retrospect. I, I good teachers. Um, but yeah, I, I think I, I could write too. I mean, I think that I've often felt like, you know, if you can read and, and you can write at a high level, you're a good student. Um, but, you know, I, I got serious about it, I think. My, especially in my last two years, I was really serious about schoolwork and reading in a way that probably not a lot of not a lot of kids are. And you know, I was, I was talking to you know, my daughter is now a, a sophomore in college, and I remember when she was in high school, it was a very competitive, um, you know, really rigorous public school that she went to, and someone should be working on English papers, and should be complaining that some of the topics were maybe, you know, kind of dull or at least not very imaginative. And like, you know, just, just make up your own topic, do it your own way. You know, I'm sure the teacher will be really glad if you kind of surprise her and do something she wasn't looking for. And she's like, no, that's not going to work. You know, they have these very strict rubrics, you know, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. And, um, you, you could just feel like school had become much more professional and much less creative. I think, again, there was a kind of a 60s vibe in the air back then that, that you know, the more imaginative you were and, and the more um, we kind of broke the rules that, that you'd actually get uh, real approval from your teachers. And I, I was like that kind of good student back then. You know, I remember I was supposed to write some... Uh, read some book about the civil war and, and write a report. And I ended up reading Richard Brodigan's, you know, a Confederate general at Big Sur, which has nothing to do with the, <laughs> with the civil war. But by the time the teacher figured that out, you know, we were well past it. So it, I, I don't know. I think, I think I was a good student at a time when there was maybe a broader definition of what that was. And there's a little more freedom um, to kind of, even in a public school, in a working class place to kind of, you know, I didn't read Catcher in the Rye and I didn't read all these other books because I was reading, you know, The Magic Mountain or, or, you know, Billy Budd or something that one, you know, one of my teachers was saying, oh, you might like this. So. And then what yeah, about, but, what about at Yale? Like how were you uh, entering Yale and what was your Yale experience like? Uh, you know, it, I, so my book, Joe College is, is very much about that. And, I went in there with, with real class consciousness and I went in there committed to the idea that, you know, I was going to take what I could get from this place 
but not let it change me. And I was going to go back home and kind of pick up my life where it had left off just with, you know, with a Yale education. And I, I had a girlfriend back home and I, I came home every couple of weeks for the first couple of years and really tried to keep Yale at arm's length. Um, and then, you know, for the last two years, my girlfriend and I decided to break up and I, you know, stayed there and I just had the greatest time, you know, I was com- completely transformed by the place. And I remember, you know, being about 30 and looking back and, and my parents and where I came from and thinking, you know, it's like, I, I don't eat the same foods that I used to eat. I don't drink the same coffee as my parents. I don't watch the same TV shows. Um, you know, I, I live in places that they would never want to live. And I, I just realized that I've been, you know, completely transformed by the place. And even though I was, you know, not making a lot of money that I'd somehow, you know, jumped classes in a way that felt like, um, both inevitable, but also like a bit of a betrayal. And, and I was surprised at how, you know, impossible it was to stop despite my, um, you know, deep desire to kind of keep the faith with where I came from. Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, like A, how that happens, and then B, uh, I don't know. It just seems like this seamless, unstoppable thing. The unstoppability of it fascinates me. And like when you look back on those years, uh, you know, you, you majored in English, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay, so when you look back on those years, like was there any pivot that you made in terms of your writing life uh, that had to do with um, the, the transformation from the reluctant Yale student to the enthusiastic Yale student? Like, did you suddenly, like once you became, once you kind of embraced the place or it embraced you, was that when you started to uh, think about writing as a as a career or was was that something you walked in the door thinking? I, I walked in the door, like if you met me the first week of freshman year, I would have said, oh, I, I want to be a a writer and and I think it's it's not an accident you know the sophomore year I took my first workshop at Yale and, and what I was doing I was writing stories that none of them actually made it into bad haircut but they were the earliest versions you know and in a funny way I was doing that thing that writers do I was um you know I was telling these people who mostly grew up in much you know wealthier towns um what it was like in the working class world, you know, and, and, uh, actually, it, you know, it was very, the work was very well received though. Um, one of my teachers told me, you know, that I needed to stop writing about where I grew up and kind of do other things. And I took that to heart, which I think, you know, was kind of a mistake because I, I, you know, I had to make my way back to those stories to, to really, make a leap as a writer later on with, with bad haircut. Um, but, uh, so I think once I started to get into writing classes and, you know, other people at Yale seemed to embrace, you know, this idea that I held very dearly, you know, that I was a writer. Um, then I started to feel much more comfortable there. Were you, were you one of the better writers even at that age? Was it evident that you had maybe more talent or more, I don't know, a willingness to do the work than others? Um, I think I, w- I was pretty good. Um, and, I, and I got a lot of good feedback uh, from from other kids in my class. I had the bad luck of being uh, 
in the same class as David Levitt, who was just this amazingly <laughs> um, talented writer. Like, you know, he was publishing stories in the New Yorker pretty much right out of Yale. And uh, he was just far, you know, just way more developed and talented at that time. And so, you know, I, I think I was... I was I was pretty good, but but I was so aware of of you know who was who was be, was beyond me, and and you know I, I don't know. I mean he's a he was a kind of a one of a kind. I mean there just aren't many writers who emerge in their early twenties and have a kind of sophisticated, um, you know, just grasp of all the mechanics and a kind of emotional a subject and a kind of emotional awareness. Yeah. So it, it took me a long time to kind of it took me you know ten more years really to kind of to be able to write a, a decent story. And, and he was doing that then. And, and I, I think I wasn't on the slow track. I mean, I think to, to kind of start to find yourself as a writer around age 30 is not, it's not old. Right. But it, but it felt that way because I was comparing myself to <laughs> people like him. Well, but you know, it's probably sometimes, it's sometimes good to have a, what do you call it? A stalking horse. Is that the right thing? The right term? Uh, or like some, some, some sort of marker, you know, to measure yourself by. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I. That's right. I mean, if if it wasn't him, I would have invented someone else. I think. Right, right. So, um, you went. You said you had a, a ten-year period where you kind of kind of continued to apprentice, and I know you did some ghostwriting during that period. Is that? Can you talk a little bit about doing that? Yeah. Well. Uh, yeah, I'll just try. I mean, I went to graduate school pretty two years after I, I finished college, so. I, I was kind of young. The uh, it was in, at the creative writing program at Syracuse, and I stayed there for three years. And um, I think by the end of that, I, I had begun to write some good stories. But uh, I, I moved to I moved to New Haven and was was sort of doing part time teaching, and you know, just getting by while while, while I wrote. But after a while, I, I was uh, laid off. There was like a policy of you can teach three years part-time and then you have to take a year off so that you don't claim full-time status and get benefits and all that. So I was living in New York for a year and I was unemployed. And a friend of mine uh, was doing a lot of freelance stuff and she knew people who were book packagers. And so I was... Uh, I got a job ghostwriting a horror novel. Okay, and you were working on election at this time, or yeah, yeah, and and so so uh, you know, it's funny now. I mean, at the time, I, I very much um, resented the horror novel because I wanted to be working on my own book. But when I look back on it now, I think, oh, you know, that was sort of the moment when I really became a writer because I was getting up in the morning, you know, working for three or four hours on election, and then putting it down and then, you know, writing a chapter of, of this horror novel. It's basically writing two novels, you know, one mine and one somebody else's and, and writing all day long. And, uh, you know, when it was done, I, I think, I think when I look back now, I think so much of those 10 years was about developing the discipline to just sit down and write and to treat it like a job as well as like, you know, some, creative calling. And, and so I think back now to that period of, you know, writing for money and, and, you know, forcing myself to do it as being, uh, as important in my 
long-term development as, um, you know, working out the intricacies of election, which I think was, you know, now that I look back on it, I think it was, was a pretty cool book to be writing at that point. Sure, sure. And um, I'm curious about how you view uh, not just election, which I think is kind of a, an obvious one to tag with this question, but I think, you know, your broader body of work, like, do you consider what, you, you know, the, the work that you do political? Uh, because like a lot of uh, the fiction that you write addresses hot button cultural issues or satirizes um, like the political system and, um, you know, the people who inhabit it. Like, do you, is that something that you kind of set out to do or is it something that, that you think all fiction uh, inherently is? Um, you know, I, I didn't set out to do it. I think that, that I, but I, I also do believe deeply in that idea that, um, you know, the political is, is personal and that if you write honestly about a particular individual in a particular time or place that, you know, that has to be a political, uh, project in some sense well but you know some oh, but something like election was you know was was came right out of the 92 election and and it specifically addresses this this the character issue around you know which was the question of if bill clinton cheats on his wife can he possibly be a president is he going isn't he going to lie to the american people if you lie to your wife you're going to lie to everyone else and and uh I remember just the fiction writer in me, you know, just finding that kind of, you know, remarkably naive way to talk about characters, since it's, you know, certain to me that, you know, people are lying to themselves and lying to others, you know, every minute of every day. Right, right. And so when you, um, whether it's election or whether it's the abstinence teacher, uh, you know, or, or any of your other works that deal with these kind of uh, cultural issues or you know, uh, political issues. Uh, I think one of the things that's really deft, uh, about your books is the fact that they don't come off as preachy, um, or really, you know, strident in their views. And that's gotta be something you're guarding against when you're writing. Uh, like, how do you, how do you work with that? It, because obviously you have your own personal feelings, but you know, it, at some, at some point that can be a hindrance to the fiction. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I think, um, you know, there's nothing worse than uh, a, a, a hectoring political novel that knows what's right and, and never deviates from it. I mean, that's, you know, you could probably call that capitalist realism, you know, if it's in contemporary America. You know, I, I think especially with the abstinence teacher is a good example here. Um, I remember I was writing it in the aftermath of the 2004 election when George W. Bush was reelected and there was this feeling that um, Ohio had gone for Bush because somehow the evangelicals had turned out all these um, Christians who, who were scared by the prospect of gay marriage. I, I don't know that that's actually statistically true, but at the time, a lot of people believed it. And I was living in Massachusetts where, you know, gay marriage was legal and there was just this sense of utter exasperation among people I knew who just look at um, these, you know, so-called values voters in Ohio and say, like, who are those people? And my sense was, 
yeah, again, what, why aren't, you know, usually it would be the job of a novelist to tell you who are those people. Um, but there weren't a whole lot of novels telling you who those people were. And, and I thought, you know, I should try and write a book about this culture clash, but, but like, you know, write like a novelist, which is from within a character rather than judging the character right. from, from without. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I think, you know, there are certain Christian commentators um, who feel like I failed in, in, um, in that book to be fair to Tim or fair to the Christian faith, but I really tried. Um, I, I tried to keep as open a mind as I possibly could. And, and um, I just feel like there's no sense in writing a novel if you end up in exactly the same place you started, that, that somehow your own um, values and beliefs should, should be on the line, that you should be dealing with like murky, scary material that you don't really understand or aren't sure how to control. And, and that's what I tried to do in that book. And I think you can kind of see it just in the way that, that Tim kind of expands. It, it seems to be Ruth's book, but Ruth, I kind of knew from the beginning and I feel like she didn't maybe grow enough in the course of the book. Whereas Tim, I think the whole book really hinges on what does he believe and why does he believe it? And, and I felt like I didn't know when I started and, and, you know, found that task of understanding him to be like the driving force of the book. And then, um, with regard to film adaptation, uh, I'm thinking of election and little children and then, uh, the leftovers is now going to be a TV show potentially, correct? Yeah, yeah, we just got the official word. Okay, so with respect to film adaptation, uh, I'm particularly envious of you because I feel like you, like you, your work has been adapted, which is a great thing, first of all, I think because it brings a broader awareness, hopefully, to the book, but it's also been adapted really well, um, uh, I think. I mean, Election, to me, is like a, a perfect movie. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, I've been very lucky in um, the the people I've, I've been able to work with, and I think the thing I should say is um, that I was able to connect with this sort of indie film movement in the you know late '90s or early 2000s um, when Sundance was really kind of a thriving place. And so you know when Alexander Payne came on to do Election, he had just shown his first movie, Citizen Ruth, at Sundance, and so he was sort of discovered there. And the producers I worked with, uh, Albert Berger and Ron Yerksa you know, were very much connected with that indie movement. And, you know, when, when Todd Field came on to do Little Children, uh, you know, In the Bedroom had recently been a big success at um, Sundance and, and in, in the wider world. So, yeah, and, and I think it was that little corner of Hollywood was just so different from mainstream Hollywood culture where writers are disrespected and, um, you know, there needs to be a happy ending and... Um, you know, formulaic stories work best. I mean, there was just this little corner of Hollywood where, um, you know, you were allowed to be dark, you were allowed to be funny in uncomfortable ways. Um, the movies could be long or they could be edgy. You know, uh, I was just able to kind of find my way to, to that place because I, I know people who had very good books that were turned into much more mainstream movies and they were almost always... Um, disappointments to the writers well i was going to say because it's almost you know the common thought is that the the book is always better than the movie 
uh, and that writers who have their books adapted almost always wind up uh, disappointed or like, you know, on the outside looking in either by choice or by virtue of the, the system or whatever. Um, but, you know, the, the movies that have been made of your uh, books have been really good movies. And I'm wondering if you've ever sat in a the theater watching them and, and thought to your, or watched them on TV or whatever it is and thought to yourself, like, you know, God, they really Im- improved it there. Or, they, you know, they, they... <laughs> oh, yeah, yes, I, I do, because, uh, you know, I think election often pops up on, uh, you know, the heartbreaking web list. <laughs> you know, 10 movies that are better than the book they were based on. <laughs> um, and, and the reason, of course, is. is a, maybe it's better, but uh, B, it, it just it's so much funnier. You know, the book has a kind of melancholy tone, and, and it, it's funny, but it's not it, it's not in your face hilarious the way that that the movie is. You know, Alexander Payne picked up on a thread, a satirical thread in the in the book, and, and just magnified it, but you know, tenfold, and and sort of suppressed other conflicting currents and and. Uh, you know, he's just he's just a funny director, and, and that's what came out. And so I think people who come to the book, particularly after having seen the movie and really loved it, are like, well, why isn't this as funny as, as that? You know, as if I were kind of, you know, trying to match the movie rather than the movie was adapted from my work. So, but, but I remember the first time that I saw Election in the theater, it was like a early press screening, and... I just couldn't believe how great it was. And I, I just kept thinking, boy, if I had nothing to do with this, if I just walked in the theater right now, I would think this was the best movie I saw this year. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it's a, it's a classic. It's a fantastic film. And, and so is Little Children. I mean, they're both just like really, really well done and well acted and well directed. So, I, I, you know, you got to feel lucky there. I, you know, I feel, I feel very lucky there. And, and <clears throat> you know, uh, Little Children, I think, is, is a little bit underrated. Um, I don't think it was released in a way that, um, it, like, even now people are still discovering it on, you know, on demand or, or uh, I think it, its profile has been raised a little bit. I shouldn't say it was, it wasn't overlooked. I mean, I think... It was nominated it, for Oscars. I mean, come on. Yeah, and it was well-reviewed, well but I think um, in some ways, I think God got a little bit... Like, like you know, Kate Winslet won her Oscar for The Reader the, the following year, I think. But I, I really do believe that her performance in Little Children was um, was really, you know, one of the best of her career. But she happened to be up against Helen Mirren playing the Queen that year. Right, right. Well, that happens a lot with the Oscars. It's like you sort of sometimes get the Oscar like the year after you should have gotten it or something like that. I feel like. Yeah, that. yeah. Or it's like a lifetime, you know, it's it's a career award. You know, it's like, okay, this person's been so good for so long. Like it's it's her turn or whatever. Yeah, no, it's definitely that's how they felt with her. She'd been nominated five times, and the reader it was like <laughs> he couldn't he couldn't like not let her win, even though I think that was I, I shouldn't say I think it was a terrific performance. I just I liked her her performance, sure. Little Children, a little more. <laughs> sure. Um, okay, so. Uh, all of this begs the question because you've not only had publishing success on the literary side, but you've had film success, uh, both in terms of having your work adapted, but also adapting it yourself because, uh, you, you co-wrote the screenplay for little children. Is that right? Yeah, with, with Todd Field. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, and then you got nominated for an Oscar for that. Mm-hmm. So uh, talk about the Oscars. That must've been sort of surreal. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> it's, it's so, uh, 
it, it's a little obnoxious to be like that. I, I actually thought the Golden Gloves were way better than, than the Oscars. I mean, the Golden Gloves had this kind of crazy... Well, you can drink. I mean, for You can God's drink. Sake. Well, that's it. It felt, like a, it felt like a weird family wedding, you know, except instead of uh, Uncle Bob, you know, there was Jack Nicholson and, you know, <laughs> and, and Susie there was Meryl Streep and Kate Blanchett. You know, it, it was... It just was surreal, you know, that, that part of the Oscars. I, I just felt like a spectator. You know, Todd and I knew we weren't going to win. It's this big auditorium. Uh, the whole thing is so militarized in some way and, and organized. And well, they it, should... it just didn't, it was... didn't have a fun vibe, you know? No, I mean, they like, I mean, I live not like a stone's throw from that uh, auditorium. So it's like they shut the street down and there's choppers all over the place. It, it, it's definitely got a military vibe. And, uh, a question I want to ask you about having been there as a nominee is like the moment when they have the camera on your face, <laughs> when they're announcing your name as a nominee, like how difficult was like facial control? Like, did you think about like, what kind of expression should I make? I always think about that when I watch the show, because I feel bad for the nominees in a way, because you have this camera in your face and like, do you smile? Do you just sit there stoically, even though this is like a nice honor or whatever, like, or am I be being too neurotic about it by proxy like um i don't i don't know that they actually put the camera on us because i, I think that that when there's the feeling is like the audience doesn't know who the writers are and doesn't oh, particularly right. care and so i think they just show they show a clip from the movie and i think that year maybe they had a photograph of like you know a, a fake cover page of a script or something I, I i honestly don't know but i think that people who watched said they saw me because I was sitting near someone else who the camera sometimes went to. But I don't think I was ever sort of, you know, featured as myself. So you were spared. Okay, that's Yeah, I, and I remember, you know, walking the red carpet and, you know, having the, that real moment, like here I am in my tux and I'm walking down the red carpet. <laughs> and, and these journalists are clicking pictures and then they're, they're all just saying, who are you? Who are you? <laughs> You're like, I'm... I'm nobody. Just leave me alone. I'm nobody. I know. <laughs> That's exactly it. So do, when you write novels, like with all the, you know, and you have obviously an interest in film and screenwriting, a lot of novelists either don't have the chance to adapt their own work or don't have an interest in doing it. So I assume you're a movie fan. And I wonder if when you sit down to write your books, uh, if you uh, have a higher level of attention um, to structure, you know, and particularly adaptability, because, you know, I know with screenplays, uh, it's a, I don't know. It's a, it's a bit more like watchmaking than writing a novel is. You know, there's there's definitely a, a finite or a relatively finite number of pages that you're working with, and uh, I I just feel like structure is much more overt in screenplays, and for good reason. You know, than it is when you're writing long form fiction. Not that structure doesn't necessarily, not not, not that structure isn't there with a the novel, but that it you know it can be. Um, you know, played with a little bit more. So when you sit yeah. down to write, are you thinking movies when you're writing your books? I, I'm not, but, but here, here's what happened. Um, I wrote a novel uh, when I was just out of grad school called Lucky Winners. That's about a family that wins the lottery. And back then there were a lot of publishers you could submit to. So I have a folder with about 45 rejections for this novel. And many of them are you know, very positive about the book, but they all sort of say, say the same thing, which was, um, you know, the book, the first 200 pages, the book is just really great. And then it kind of, the energy just gets diffused. It's this kind of family novel where the family's tightly knit, but then they win the lottery and people get to sort of 
pursue their dreams and change their lives, and, and the family kind of falls apart, and people spin off, and the novel loses its its center. And I was never able to kind of get them back together and make the book cohere. Um, and so when I was sort of licking my wounds from from that, um, what I perceived as a failure at the time, and I wanted to write another book, and I thought. I'm not going to let that happen. I'm not going to write this kind of big amorphous family saga that could go on for a thousand pages or, you know, 700 pages or 500 pages. I'm going to write something that has a kind of built-in structure. And so the next book I wrote was, was election. And of course the whole story is structured by the election. It begins on the day that the nominating petitions are uh, circulated in school <clears throat> then it pretty much goes through the election and any time I felt like what what has to happen in this chapter you know I would think okay what's going on in the election cycle and obviously the book has a little bit of an epilogue but it's it's essentially the story of of the election from beginning to end right and I found that that to have this built-in structure really helped me as a writer and, and the book is on the other hand it has a very fragmented structure because it has seven narrators and they switch off telling little bits of the story but I felt like I could deploy that device because I really had this this frame in which I was working. Did you outline, or do you outline? I I don't, but I felt like um, because I kind of knew intuitively where I was in the story, my choices were were easier to make. And and um, and then the next book I wrote was The Wishbones. In that case, is a guy gets engaged in chapter one and he gets married in the last chapter, and you know. It's, it's really the story of his engagement, but, of course, complicated by the fact that he meets a woman at a wedding that his band's playing at, and he, it's a triangle, and it's a question of will he um, you know, marry his fiancée, will he run off with, with his girlfriend? So, again, there's a built-in structure, um, and uh, I've, sort of, I've sort of gotten rid of that now, uh, but, it, but I remember that at that time in my um, writing life, it seemed really good to have a built-in structure, and I think I became very conscious of of structure. It sounds good to me now. Like I like the it takes some of the takes some of the pressure off. Like when you have that framework that's sort of built in, but of course you've got to arrive at that premise you know, in order to find it. But um, I guess all of this it begs the question then: now that you've uh, published uh, a new story collection, uh, which is your first since Bad Haircut, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, any you know, after all this time away from short fiction, or at least publishing short fiction uh, in a collection, like, is there something different? Uh, you know, like what's different from uh, sitting down at the desk in the morning and getting to work perspective uh, between writing these novels and then working on the short stories? Well, I think the thing that I love about novels, and the thing that makes me feel like. I'm probably a novelist before I'm a story writer. Uh, it's just that I love the middle. I, I love having um, the, the part of the book um, where I've kind of established the situation, where I've introduced my characters, and, and there's just that period where they get to kind of float around and bump into each other and complicate each other's lives. And um, you know, I, I like fairly big ensembles and, and I, I like just letting the novel breathe and stretch out. And I think um, with stories, there's less of that. I mean, I think you have to go through the hard work of establishing the situation and introducing the character, but pretty much once you get the story up and running, it's time to shut it down. 
And I feel like, you know, there's a lot of hard work involved in beginning and ending and um, not a lot of middle with stories. And, and the middle is, is almost my favorite part. So uh, with somebody who's had like your level of, of uh, success, uh, has it gotten any easier? Like, is it easier for you now than it was when you started? Um, you know, I think what's easier is, is just there is a, a certain kind of confidence that comes with, um, you know, all right, if I have a bad day or if I'm having a really hard time solving a particular problem or um, something just isn't working, I feel like, okay, I've done this before. You know, I know that if I just stick with it or, or you know, figure out a way around it, that it will be okay. I think I think it's great not to have that level of anxiety, which is, do I even, am I even good at this or am I competent at this? I think I don't have that, um, that particular problem. But I think if you've done it long enough, then there's this other level of, of anxiety, which is, uh, have I done this before? Am I repeating myself? Um, am I, you know, or am I losing it? You know, why, how come I'm not as funny as I used to be, which is one of my, <laughs> my real, uh, is one of the things I wonder about, you know, I think there was just a kind of lighthearted attitude toward life that uh, allowed me to be funnier when I was younger. I, I think now I'm much more conscious of, um, you know, the, certain heavier things that, that, um, maybe just, just don't allow me to be as funny as I, as I used to be. And, and so I have to, you know, deal with that. So, so I think there's always some level of anxiety, but at least I don't have the beginner's anxiety of, you know, is it possible for me to, to even do this at, at the level I want to do it at. And then when you, and when you finish a book, like you have fairly strong, confidence that whatever you write is going to find its way into print. Like you don't sweat like book deals anymore or anything like that. Like you're pretty, you're, you're at the level now where like when you write something, it's going to get published. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. So that, that part of it is, is good. I mean, I'm, cause I definitely know what it's like to, I, I wrote three books, three books before one of them got published eventually. So that was bad haircut, lucky winners, an election. So eventually two of those books got published, but for about a five year period, I had three books and, and no publisher. And, and, um, I know what that felt like. That was, that was rough. Um, so it's great. I know there's going to be a publisher now. Um, but I don't know, you know, if you fail or write a bad book, you know, it's happening in public in a way that, that is potentially, uh, more painful than if you, you fail in private. Well, uh, I don't think, I mean, for the, for the time being, I think you're in good shape. So I think that's good news. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. And it's been really, yeah, you know, but I guess that, that that's going to exist for everyone. Right. So, yeah. um, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. This has been really fun. Uh, I'm a huge fan and uh, I wish you well on this, uh, the, the television, uh, adaptation of the leftovers. That sounds interesting. No, thanks, Brad. I really enjoyed talking to you. Okay, you guys, there you go. That is Tom Parada. Go get his new story collection. It's called Nine Inches. It is available now in hardcover. Uh, (laughs) 
Uh, am I the only one who's perverted on this? Nine inches available in hardcover. Do you get that? It is available now in hardcover and ebook editions from St. Martin's Press. You can find Tom online at tomparada.net, and he's also on the Facebook. And hey, thanks again to our sponsor, Squarespace. Remember, folks, if you need a website or you want to improve your existing website, just head over to squarespace.com right away. And when you do, be sure to enter the promo code OTHER9. You'll get 10% off. How about that? Huh? Once again, that offer code is OTHER9. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, don't forget to go get the app, the Other People app, the official app of this program. It is available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's free. And it's the best and most elegant way to listen to the program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. Uh, You can favorite your favorite episodes. And you can also access premium content and the full archives all via the app. So please go get that if you haven't done so already. The app itself is free. Uh, Okay, I'm sweating. I am perspiring. It's getting hot in this room. And uh, this is what happens when I record the show in the warmer months, at least, uh, for whatever reason, my body temperature skyrockets when I do this and my ears, uh, feel hot under these headphones. I'm expending energy. Can you feel it? Can you feel this transfer of energy? Please remember that Ernest Hemingway once referred to his mentor, Sherwood Anderson as quote, a slob. And that he once referred to his good friend, F Scott Fitzgerald as quote, a rummy, and a liar. That is it for now. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Tom Parada. Uh, go get nine inches. You hear me? <laughs> I've always wanted to say that. Go get nine inches, everybody. I'll be back uh, in a few days with another episode. Uh, go get your nine inches. And after you've gotten your nine inches, uh, leave me a voicemail. <laughs>